It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, except that it's 70 degrees outside. God, you got to love the, uh, the Arizona December experience, the Arizona Christmas experience where we have to have the fake snow to remind us that somewhere around the world there is snow, and yet we don't have to shovel any of it. So anyway, uh, so glad that you're here. Welcome. Uh, we are starting a new Christmas series. I'll uh, talk about that in just a few moments. My name is Alan, and uh, again, uh, glad to celebrate Christmas with you here today. Last Sunday... We uh, gave you a card on the way in, and it walked out what we call our, uh, our Christmas outreach offering. And what this does is it outlines a number of the ministries that we are involved with and that we will be supporting in, uh, in the year 2019. What we do is twice a year, once around Christmas, once around Easter, we take up an offering, and everything that comes in on that particular Sunday goes towards the items on our Christmas outreach offering list and our plan for 2019. That offering will take place on December 16th, two weeks from this Sunday. And again, on that Sunday, everything that comes in will go towards outreach to a number of different uh, areas. So excited to, to do that and inviting you to pray and think about your involvement with uh, this year's Christmas outreach offering. One of the things on that list is an organization called Heart for Lebanon. The executive director of that, uh, of that organization is a friend of mine named Camille Melky, and we went to seminary together a number of years ago, and we've been friends ever since then. He felt called to go back to his home country of Lebanon, and uh, after a few years, he started up this organization called Heart for, uh, Heart for Lebanon, and uh, what they do is they serve the, the thousands of, uh, some of the thousands of Syrian refugees who have been flooding into Lebanon over the past few years. The Christmas gift to you all today is that, Chris, is that uh, Camille Melky is here visiting us uh, this weekend, and so we want to give him an opportunity to greet you, to say hello, and for you to uh, meet him a little bit. So would you please welcome Camille Melky. Glad to have you back. Good morning, Mountain Park. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to worship with you today. And thank you for the partnership that we have together in helping leading people from despair to hope and hope in Christ alone. Living in despair is uh, the story of my life. I was born and raised in a country called Lebanon in the Middle East where all my childhood and my formation years were uh, lived in a civil war that lasted 17 years. That war definitely uh, forced me to leave the country, like many of us, uh, to pursue education elsewhere, since all our schools and universities were bombed out or closed. And I came to Anderson University. That's where I met your pastor. And together we talked a lot about uh, living in a state of despair what it means to survive a 17-year war. And you know that state of despair can stay with you far longer than even the times when the uh, bullets and the guns are silenced because the memories and the experiences, they stay with you. And every time, every now and then, you are reminded of those. So once I uh, finished uh, my seminary years, my wife Huda and I returned to Lebanon and founded this ministry called Heart for Lebanon, helping leading people 
from despair to hope, hope in Christ alone. We began this ministry working with the internally displaced, the Lebanese who have suffered tremendously, who have lost their homes and businesses, lost their loved ones, and who are struggling to start life again from scratch. Until we got to the year 2011 when the war in Syria began. And we started as a country of Lebanon receiving hundreds of thousands, in fact, million, 1.6 million refugees crossing the uh, mountainous terrains between Lebanon and Syria, coming to our country as refugees, literally with the clothes that they are wearing. People have lost almost every hope of survival. Individuals who have seen their loved ones being shot at checkpoints by the Syrian regime as they're fleeing for their lives. Children who have lost their mothers and fathers. Grandparents who have seen their family being wiped out by ethnic cleansing. Today, the war in Syria is considered as the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. There's no conflict, man-made or natural disasters who have caused more death and destruction since World War II, like what Syria is causing today. More than half of that population, 13 and a half million individuals, are in dire need for help, for humanitarian aid, to survive this hardship. Five million of them have crossed the borders to neighboring country, most of them to the country of Lebanon. Today, our nation is considered the largest per capita host of refugees worldwide. It's true that there are nations who have more refugees by numbers, but there's no country on planet Earth that has more refugees per capita than our country in Lebanon. So if we want to put that into a U.S. perspective, if this is a nation with 350 million citizens, you need to expect around 160 to 170 million individuals to cross your borders from the north and the south so you can understand the impact that it has on our economy and in our uh, social divides and religious divides. Especially that the, most of the refugees who are coming from Syria are individuals who uh, were born Muslims, Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims that are always at odds with each other, always fighting one another. But the added to, uh, difficulty in this is these are the same people who were meddling in our own civil war. Individuals uh, who we considered enemies not long ago. I need to remind you that the 17-year civil war that Lebanon experienced was because of the Syrian presence in our nation. In fact, the Syrian regime occupied our country from 1975 to 2005. These are the same people who Heart for Lebanon today is reaching out to who at one point shot at me and my wife on our wedding day. It's the same people who our daughter are still today suffering emotionally from a car bomb explosion that she has physically survived and we're so thankful for. But I've seen so many people who died and were injured in front of her until today she still struggles with that memory and experience. It's the same people who have every, almost every family in Lebanon has a story of occupation, of hardship, of brokenness. 
So when we serve the refugees, and Heart for Lebanon today is serving more than 2,000 refugees every given month, 10,000, uh, sorry, 2,000 refugee family every given month, around 15 to 18,000 individuals on monthly basis. When we enter into their tent settlements, into their homes, makeshift homes, they ask us this one question, why do you care and why are you here? Is this time for you to feel vindicated, feel revenge, for you to feel like it's time for us to suffer? They ask that why question because they themselves are struggling so much with this state of despair. They have lost any trust in humanity. And as we visit with them, we get this opportunity to share with them about the unconditional love that we have experienced as people who lived in despair. And the forgiveness that we have received from Jesus Christ. And it's that forgiveness and nothing else would take us into a refugee family from Syria. Our enemies of yesterday and our friends of today. And the reason I say it's our friend of today because everything that we do and serve on the access ministry give us that one opportunity to tell them that Jesus loves them. And as they are searching for the truth, hundreds of them are attending our Bible studies and our discipleship program every week. This Sunday, this morning, well, it's evening now in Beirut, but in this morning we had 450 Muslim convert in two of our worship gatherings, boldly declaring Christ as their personal Savior. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, Christ deserved that clapping. If you had asked me that a couple of years ago, I would tell you this is impossible. Mm. This is something I cannot imagine or dream of. Muslims by birth, brothers and sisters in Christ, by faith and by commitment, leading others for, to Christ, boldly declaring him as Lord over their lives and the lives of their families. This is only possible because you care, because together we join hands in helping leading people from that state of despair to a state of hope and hope in Christ alone. So thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your partnership. Thank you for making Christmas unique and special for children and adults likewise. And Merry Christmas to everyone. There was a team of us that got to go last year at this time at the beginning of, of December to go visit Camille and their organization, just see just how great of what they're doing. And one of the things that I learned while I was there and driving around with Camille, et cetera, was just the reality that not only does he live in a dangerous country, in a dangerous part of the world, but he is, he is targeted specifically as the leader of this organization because there are people there passionate about stopping organizations like this, loving on the Syrian refugees and inviting uh, Jesus uh, into, you know, inviting them to understand who Jesus is and respond to Jesus. And so, so he's literally having to bring courage every day into the, the work and the calling that he has for his life. So I thought we would take a moment, pray for him, and that God would continue to have uh, favor on their ministry. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are thankful for Camille. We are inspired by his courage. 
by this man who went back home uh, to say, these are my people. And, and uh, for this man who said, these Syrians used to be my enemies, and now, God, you've called me to love them. And so he is courageously doing that. Father, I pray that, in, that you would uh, protect him and his family and uh, leaders in the organization that he's leading. God, I pray that you would bring favor uh, upon them as they continue to serve and love, as they balance the physical needs and the, the, the spiritual needs of the people that they're serving. God, that they would bring wisdom into that and continue to honor you in tremendous ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Camille. Good to see you. Well, we are starting this new series called Speaking of Christmas, and as Jan said, there is a journal that hopefully you had the opportunity to pick up. If you have not yet, please feel free to, to do that. They're $5 over there at the white table. If you're brand new, you can pick one up for free, but you can walk through this journey with us on a daily basis and kind of see what Scripture has to say about the Christmas story. Essentially, what we mean by the title, Speaking of Christmas, is we are looking at the four authorized versions of the story of Jesus as found in the New Testament. The New Testament begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we, over the next four weeks, are looking at those four different books to see that they talk about the Christmas story in different ways. They speak of Christmas in unique ways. And so we're going to find out how each of these gospel writers tackles the story of Christmas uh, uniquely. So next week, we're going to look at the book of Mark. And then the week after that, we're going to look at Luke. And on our Christmas Eve weekend, where the Saturday, where the Sunday and Monday services are all identical over the six services, we're going to take a look primarily at the book of John. But this morning, we are looking at the first book in the New Testament, the first gospel. It's Matthew's version of the story of Jesus. Matthew was one of the disciples, and he gets to start off our New Testament. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapters 1 and 2. If you have an electronic Bible, I invite you to turn there with me as well. It's good to see it in front of you. We will have it up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, I do encourage you to, to, to go there. Matthew Chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob, the fa- no, I'm not going to read it all. Yeah. Uh, some of you got a little bit nervous if you saw how long the genealogy is, or you're aware of how long the genealogy is, that this might not seem all that important to us, but for Matthew, this was super important. He walks through the genealogy to say, this goes from Abraham to David to Joseph, the father of Jesus, that Matthew was Jewish, and he was, he was very Jewish. He knew and loved his Jewish history and his, the Jewish story. He wanted to make sure that his audience, who was also Jewish, understood that the Jesus he's talking about is not separated from Judaism, but Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. And so this was very important to Matthew as he begins his version of the story of Jesus. Jumping now to verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah, just let me pause there, Matthew uses the phrase, Jesus the Messiah. This was uh, part of his passion and with connecting with the Jewish story, that this Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. Uh, the prophets had been talking about a Messiah coming one day, a Savior of the world. Jesus is the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. That's a phrase that just, it's so clear to say, this is the origin story of Jesus. 
Most of us like origin stories. You go see the movie about a, your favorite superhero. We want to see the origin story. How did he or she become that superhero? This is the origin story of Jesus. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. This is the beginning of Matthew's version of the story of Christmas. It's not all that cheerful. It's not all that happy, joy, joy, uh, 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 kind of Christmassy, glitzy kind of stuff. He's, he talks about an unwanted pregnancy, and he talks about the D word. He talks about divorce. This sounds more like an American Christmas than the original Christmas. He just jumps in, but there's a tone that we get from Matthew's version of this story. And then he goes into an angel coming to speak to Joseph and saying, Joseph, you are going to call your son Jesus. And I'll talk in just a few minutes about what that name means and the significance of that name. Uh, but that is a beautiful part of Matthew's uh, version of the story. Let me continue. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, that's what we've been singing about this morning. Emmanuel, that's what that word means, God with us. Matthew, this is evidence that he wants to connect with the Old Testament. Oftentimes, he'll, he's the one who says, as the prophets had said. He quotes more Old Testament scripture than any of the other gospel writers. He wants to connect this Jesus story with the Old Testament story. Finally, chapter 1 concludes, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Now, that's Matthew's chapter 1, beginning of the, the origin story of Jesus. What is missing in this version of the story of Jesus? Well, pretty much everything. I mean, where's the innkeeper? Where's the stable? Where's the manger? Where are the shepherds? Where are the sheep? Where's the little drummer boy? We, we, we don't get much of this, that our American uh, Christmas story that we know and love and celebrate, our Christmas story is a sanitized version of the Christmas story. Our American story is the cute, uh, clean, happy, precious moment version of the Christmas story. Because all the animals in, the, in our classic Christmas story, they're smiling and they don't smell. And we, and we learn from the song Away in a Manger that the baby doesn't even cry. No crying he makes. And so it's a real peaceful, beautiful, pretty, happy, little, rated G story that we find. That is our Christmas story. It's not a rated R story like Braveheart or Gladiator or Tropic Thunder. It's not a story like that. But Matthew comes in and Matthew tells a story that is for mature audiences only. Matthew comes in and tells an unsanitized version 
of the story of Jesus, the origin story of Jesus. We see glimpses of this in chapter 1, and it becomes more apparent in chapter 2. So let's continue. The beginning of chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, here we start to get some of the classic American Christmas story elements. We get the star, which is a great part of the story. We get the magi, also known as the wise men, also known as we three kings by the song that we sing. But what's important to understand in Matthew's version of the story, the reason he's talking about the magi, the kings, is because they are an important part of the story of Herod. They're connected to the story of Herod. And we're going to find out what that means in, in just a little bit. But continuing in verse 3, when King Herod, see this story is, has a lot to do with Herod, heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. It's, it says all Jerusalem with him. They heard that this, that this uh, Messiah may have been born in Bethlehem. And it says all of Jerusalem was disturbed with Herod. Again, this is not the festive, happy, happy, joy, joy Christmas story. Jump down to verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, I read it like that because it's a total lie. I read it with a little bit of kind of snarl in my voice because it's a total lie that Herod would have been interested in worshiping this king of the Jews. Verse 2 says that the baby was referred to as the king of the Jews. Herod would not have been interested in worshiping a king, the king of the Jews because he's the king of the Jews. And he was known for not responding well to any threat to his leadership, to his kingship. He was known for uh, responding very poorly. He killed his own mother-in-law. He killed his own wife. Um, and he loved his wife. It wasn't a wife that he didn't like and he wanted to get rid of her. He loved his wife, but learned that she might become a threat to his throne. So he had her killed. He also had three of his own sons killed because they were heirs to the throne and he was worried that they might take the throne early. The emperor of Rome at the time. So this region... Uh, Jerusalem was part of the Roman Empire, and the emperor back in Rome was aware of Herod and said at one point, it's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son, because he was kosher and he would not have killed a pig, but he would kill his own son. I mean, this, this is the Herod, this is the story that we're looking at here, that Matthew is talking about. Herod was a, re, was a raging lunatic. He's referred to in history as Herod the Great, because he built great buildings. And there's no question about that. There's evidence outside of Scripture that he built tremendous buildings in a number of different cities, and, and there, some of them are still uh, visible today. It's incredible stuff. But in terms of his power and his paranoia, he was a raging lunatic. He was, he was just completely uh, obsessed with, with all of this stuff. 
So what happens is the Magi go, and Matthew tells a great version of the story, the Magi interacting with Jesus and having an encounter and giving the gifts, and it's a beautiful part of our Christmas story. Then the Magi hear from the angel to say, don't go tell anything to Herod. Get out of there, go back home. So they are saved, and they go back home. Then we find the most horrific part of the story that some of you may or be familiar with, some of you may not. Beginning in verse 16 in Matthew's version of the story of Christmas, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, and its vicinity, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Again, Matthew is connecting with the Old Testament. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. According to Matthew, one of the disciples, one of the writers of the Gospels, it was significant enough for him in the telling of the Christmas story to write about a raging lunatic king and the unimaginable death of who knows how many infant boys. Why? Why did Matthew choose to start off his story this way? Why would he have such an unsanitized version of the Christmas story? Why would I talk about this story as we begin a Christmas season. Christmas is the season of joy and happiness. And Why would we bring this story up? Why is this part of the story, the Christmas story, even though it's a, a part of the story we rarely read, why is it there? Why is it embedded in Scripture? Because Jesus came to fix a very big problem. Jesus came to fix a very big problem. If we don't understand that or agree with that, then the Christmas story will remain a cute, sanitized, precious moments story. It won't go beyond that. As I said from chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said to Joseph, you are to name your son Jesus. And the reason that name was and still is so significant. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means to deliver, to rescue, to save. And if we don't understand that there is something that needs to be delivered or rescued or saved, that we are people who need to be delivered and rescued and saved, then we will not understand Jesus as a Savior. We will not understand this birth as part of the Christmas story that we celebrate is the Savior of the world. That if, if we don't know what the problem is, if we don't identify something as a problem, we, don't, we aren't interested in something coming to fix it. We don't acknowledge or celebrate or look for a fix if we don't see that there is a problem. I'm not interested as part of the Black Friday sales in a tremendous sale on a garage door opener. I'm not interested because I have garage door openers that work. I don't need a garage door opener, so I don't need a fix for a garage door opener. 
I get cards on, on my front door, often business cards for landscaping companies. I don't care about those cards. I don't have a need for that because I have artificial turf in my front yard and my backyard. So I don't need that. I don't care about that. That's a, that's a fix. That's a solution for a problem that I don't have. We're not going to enjoy or appreciate or even see the, fi- the fix unless we identify with clarity what the problem is. This is, this is one of the ways that we, we handle Christmas shopping, that with the people we love, we want to identify something to buy for them. And so part of our thinking process often is, what, what problem do they have in their life? What part of their life is something that could be fixed or improved by some kind of item that perhaps they wouldn't buy for themselves? For some, that's kind of an ideal gift. There's some kind of inconvenience that somebody I care about has, so I will buy something for them that will help them and they will love me more as a result of that. That this is the way companies create items and they, they work all year to, to try to identify problems that people have and then solutions to those problems. And so if they advertise well enough and we say, yeah, of course I need an iPad, of course I need something that's that size that I never knew existed before, but now I absolutely need to have one, then, then, uh, then the solution is going, to, uh, is going to be of greater interest. And so part of the sales plan is to, is to make sure the problem is clear, and then you come to our company and buy this, and it will fix that problem. For example, did you know that here in 2018, and for the first time in the history of the world, there is something available called the smart toilet? Did you know about this? This is, this is uh, available by Kohler, the company that has been trusted in toilet making for many years, and they now have a smart toilet that will play the, the music that you want uh, uh, while you are doing what you need to do. And it will uh, warm the seat for you, keep the seat at the proper temperature for you. And it will monitor your bowel movements to make sure everything's going well there. I imagine it saying, hello, Dave. Con- congratulations, that was a two-pounder. Uh, it- <laughs> That there's, here's this item that is going to take care of, of something. So if you have somebody in your life who seems to have everything and you don't know what to get them, you can buy one of these for that person for only $5,000. What a steal, huh? I see a number of you writing down these, this information. Let me just tell you, if you're considering buying one of these, please don't. Please don't. If you have $5,000 to spend on a toilet, please talk to Camille Melky about what's happening in Lebanon. Okay, let me just tell you, that's a better use of, of our money. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, any gadget, any invention is useless if it's trying to solve a problem that we don't have. It's useless if it's trying to solve a problem that we haven't identified or we're not interested in. We're not going to buy it. The whole idea is, is this really a problem? And Matthew wants to tell his version of the story of Christmas by saying with great clarity, folks, there is a problem. The world is broken. Here's they've walked through the Old Testament story and then they've had hundreds of years of silence and Matthew wants to start this story of the coming of, of the Messiah by making great, by giving great, great clarity that the world is broken as evidenced by Jerusalem, the city that has historically been the center of the people of God, that Matthew says, 
all are disturbed with this upcoming news that God was moving into their neighborhood. And Jerusalem is disturbed by this. That's a problem. As evidenced by a paranoid king who is killing who knows how many infant boys because one of them might one day become a threat to that king. What? There's a problem. The world is broken, as evidenced by uh, a country in the Middle East that Camille grew up in that had 17 years of civil war, as evidenced by 1.6 million Syrian refugees pouring into Lebanon many of which had an education and had a job and had a home and now walking across with nothing but the clothes on their backs. And they're just trying to survive. Incredibly impoverished people. There's a problem. The world is broken as evidenced by an increasing divorce rate here in our culture, here in our communities that we seem to be less and less concerned about. That it's almost now coming to the point of 50%. Oh, I thought it was 60%. I heard 63%. And, and, well, do we even care about that anymore? As evidenced by young people, that, that studies are showing that there's more and more depression among young people. People in high school and, and suicides that are pouring out of, out of that young age. All the pressure and all the... The, the tension of a desire to connect socially with other people and the confusion around how our, 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 our technology is making that different and difficult. And all of the pressure and tension around that is just, it's just it's, there's a problem. God has created us to connect deeply and intimately with one another and, and, and many people in our culture and our community are having a hard time doing that. Matthew wants to be super clear as he begins to tell this incredible story, the origin story of Jesus, to say there's a problem. We need to understand that there's a problem, otherwise we will have no interest in a Savior. We need to understand, we need to be delivered and rescued and saved, otherwise we won't be, we won't be, we won't understand how important the Savior is. So, Matthew did not write chapters 1 and 2, particularly chapter 2, so that we would understand the story of Herod. Matthew doesn't want us 2,000 years later to make sure we understand Herod. This story is not about Herod. This story is about us. This story is about humanity. I say this oftentimes as we read through Scripture. It's important for us when we read Scripture to say, who am I in this story? Whatever story you're reading, whatever part of Scripture, you just go, okay, who am I? And you might be a different character in a particular story at different times of your life because the Holy Spirit uses that story in different ways. That's the way I think Scripture speaks to us. It's important to ask, when you're reading through the book of Matthew, who are you in this story? You're not the shepherds because Matthew doesn't mention the shepherds. You're not the angel because, well, I know some of you, come on. You're not, you may or may not be the magi. That might be how, the, how God's speaking to you through this story. You're not the baby, I know that. You and I are Herod. 
there's a part of us, like Herod, that wants power. Call it power, call it control. But we want control over situations in our lives, over things in our lives, over people in our lives. And there's a tendency to say, this is really important to me. And God, I'm not trusting you with this situation. I want to be in control of this situation. I want to be in control of this part of my life. I am threatened when anything else, when another thing, another person, another circumstance takes power away from me about this part of my life. I'm threatened by that. I don't like it. And I will do perhaps whatever it takes in order to regain control. That's Herod. That's Herod's story. So it's important for us as we enter into this to say, to to get the value of Jesus as the Savior, to go, in what way am I Herod in my pursuit of power and control? We cannot embrace Jesus as the fix, as the solution, unless we understand what the problem is and our need to be saved. The story of Jesus goes on, and he has an interaction with a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And you may know this story. Zacchaeus is a hated uh, wee little man, and, and he has an encounter with Jesus, and he understands his brokenness. Zacchaeus understands what he has done to his people. and He has a complete transformation. And the end of that story, Jesus says, uh, at the end of the Zacchaeus story, he says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. If we don't see ourselves as lost, if we don't see ourselves as broken, then we will not see this baby as the central character in the Christmas story, as the Savior. If we don't see that, then the Christmas story will remain acute, sanitized, precious moments children's version of the story. It won't be the mature audience version that Matthew has walked out here in chapters 1 and 2. It won't be the story that, that truly penetrates hearts, as Matthew would hope it would be. Matthew wants to say, Jesus came to fix a very big problem. Yes, his gospel starts off, I love the book of Matthew. Soon, what happens in that book is we go into the Sermon on the Mount, and it's changed the world. The Sermon on the Mount has changed the world. But Matthew starts his story off in admittedly a dark way. And this series this morning starts off in admittedly a dark way. But we get to say joy to the world. We get to sing joy to the world because Jesus came to fix a very big problem. Did you know that in that famous joy to the world song, there is a verse that we often don't sing. And some of you may not have even ever heard of it. But Isaac Watts, when he wrote this song, had one verse that I think very much connects with the Matthew story. And that verse goes like this, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns invest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. We understand the joy part of joy to the world. How is it not 
How, how can we not? I mean, it is such an incredible time of the year. December is just an incredible month. We have such great music, such great uh, decorations. We got the fake snow. We got friends. We got parties. We got presents. We got people. It's, it's just great stuff. So much joy. But the name of the song is Joy to the World. And part of what this song is trying to address is there is a big, big problem that is addressed, that Jesus came to address. And Matthew wants to make sure that we understand this by starting off the gospel saying, there is a major problem, and Jesus came to address that problem. That's the true joy piece that we get to celebrate. As we start off this Christmas season, this Christmas series, this Christmas series may we kind of dig into why is Jesus called the Savior the deliverer, the rescuer. From what do we need saving and rescuing? And how is that going to look this Christmas? Before I dismiss you today, I'd love for us to sing this classic song together, Joy to the World. The band is going to come out and lead it with us. And so I ask if you would uh, stand. I want to pray with you. And then we'll sing that song with this lesser known verse in it. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I thank you for the genuineness of Scripture. I love that your word has not been sanitized, that Matthew spoke clearly and directly for us to understand there is a brokenness that needs fixed. And so, God, I pray that we would remember that this Christmas season, that we would we would not be torn down by that, by the reality of our brokenness, but we would look up to you and celebrate. The joy comes from the fix. The joy comes from you giving us a way out of our pit. And so, God, we want to celebrate that today. We want to sing that. We want to enjoy that as we enter into the Christmas season, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.